Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. Good morning, folks. Welcome to North Sound Church. Great to have you joining us for worship today. Uh, We have uh, our annual meeting, which happens once a year, right, Robin? (laughs) Uh, We have our annual meeting today, and uh, you're welcome to uh, hang out with us to get a bite uh, at the, uh, at the, the, when the service is over, a uh, little brunch, and then just bring it back to your seats, and uh, we'll jump into the annual meeting. Um, I told the folks in the first service that the annual meeting um, is kind of like pulling back the curtains uh, once a year where we talk about stuff we don't normally talk about, um, like budgets and, and uh, you know, who the elders are and that sort of thing. But I realized that the metaphor of pulling back the curtains suggests that they're closed and that we're not very transparent the rest of the year. So uh, probably not the best metaphor uh, because we're open to your, uh, to your questions or observations, uh, 365, so uh, please, please know that. But if you'd like to join us, um, we, we do have membership at North Sound Church, so those folks will vote on a couple of issues like the budget and uh, approval of the budget and the, uh, and the ratification of elders that will be uh, recommended to you this year. Um, but everybody is welcome to uh, stay and uh, participate, enjoy the meeting, and uh, be able to listen to the proceedings. So I hope you'll consider uh, doing that this morning. We are in a uh, new series, it's only a five-week-long series, uh, about the words of worship, and uh, we are going to be talking about hallelujah today, and so I invite you to open your Bibles and uh, join with us uh, as we look together today at the word hallelujah. I don't know uh, if you've had an opportunity in your life to be around what we call VIPs, very important uh, people. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's, um, it, it's, it's an interesting experience to, to do that. I haven't had a lot of it uh, in, in my life. Barb and I went to Queen Elizabeth High School uh, when we grew up in Canada, and uh, we, uh, we were uh, pretty much most of our adult lives until last year. She was the queen. And I had always wanted to see the Queen, but it wasn't until I was a graduate student at the University of Washington um, that I actually got to see her up close and personal. And that was interesting because she was giving a speech uh, at what was then the, do you remember the Heck Edmondson Pavilion? I think it's, is it Bank of America or now? I'm not, not sure what it's called now. But uh, anyway, she was uh, going to be giving a speech, and uh, I was in grad school and uh, studying philosophy, and one of the professors uh, had a ticket that he wasn't going to use, so I was able to go in, and just not very far away, there was, uh, there was the queen. And then I was reminded, as I was thinking about this in terms of VIPs, that uh, when I responded to 9-11, um, when I was working at the Pentagon, there was a tent city outside the Pentagon, and we had a chaplain tent where folks could be ministered to because of the, the trauma that so many people had been going through, as well as those that were part of the, the rescue team and recovery team. And so um, while I was out uh, one day uh, working there in the tent city, um, I saw a gentleman that I had seen on the news a lot, just kind of walking and, and checking over the, the grounds and the damage that was done on that wall in the Pentagon. And it was like, hey, there's 
Donald Rumsfeld. And like a good Navy commander at the time, I didn't run up and attempt to shake his hand and get an autograph. But it was, uh, it was interesting to actually see this person that I had seen on TV for so much, uh, much, much time, uh, actually live and in person. And then it was just about four months after 9-11, I had a conference, a Navy conference, uh, down in New Orleans. And some of you know uh, the French Quarter of New Orleans, and there's a, a little place called Café du Monde. And uh, if you ever go to New Orleans, you must go to Café du Monde. They have this sort of a chicory coffee uh, that is amazing, but what puts them on the map are the... Beignets. Oh, my goodness. You guys, you guys have been there. Uh, the beignets are just wonderful. They're like a, they're like a, a donut that um, is got... Uh, they, in fact, they, they give you the beignets warm and in a bag with sugar. Um, it's, I don't know how many calories, Barbara, and one of those, a lot. Yeah. So anyway, um, we were down there. We had the conference, and we had, we're down in the French Quarter. And uh, we were walking when we saw the police closing off a street, the New Orleans police closing off a street. And I thought, I wonder what's going on. So I went up to a New Orleans police officer and said, what's happening? And he said, well, in just a moment, the president is going to come down the street in his motorcade, and they're going to a restaurant here in the French Quarter. Now, you've got to realize this was right after 9-11, and we had a rare time of political unity for at least a few months. And so um, we were mostly all pleased with George W. Bush at that time because he was our leader in a wartime situation. And it was amazing to me as we stood there, sure enough, it was just about five minutes later that his car comes down and he waves at the crowd. But what, really, what I really found interesting was that the crowd spontaneously clapped for him. We didn't just look and wave, but we actually clapped. And, and I realized, you know, in retrospect, that we were in rough shape as a nation. We had been under attack and he was now our leader, whether we were Democrats or Republicans. And uh, we just wanted to show our support for the difficult decisions that he had to make uh, in, that, in that particular time. This morning, we're going to be talking about a very important VIP, but it isn't someone amongst us. In fact, it's not a human being. We're going to talk today about the awesomeness of God while we continue with our series of messages on the five words of worship so you may recall from last week that the five words of worship are the same in every language. They go back to the Hebrew or the Aramaic. They were the words that were probably spoken by uh, Jesus uh, because Jesus spoke in the common language of the people in Aramaic and then it was translated into or recorded in Greek and that's what we have our Greek New Testament and now English. But the interesting thing is that whether you are in French Polynesia, like Casey and Sherry, who are running sound and, uh, and our PowerPoint today, did I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to embarrass you, but um, these guys, like Marv and I in Hawaii doing missionary work in the islands of the Pacific, they were sort of doing missionary work amongst the islands of the Pacific, right, Casey and Sherry? And uh, anyway, whether it's French Polynesia, uh, whether it's uh, French 
in general or whether it's Spanish, whatever the language is, these words are the same because they've been transliterated uh, from the Aramaic all the way right through. And so the five words of worship, including hallelujah, come to us with a very ancient usage and important meaning that has come down to us through the years. So the five words of worship are given to us to help us understand how we can keep worship in balance. You, you may have noticed that in some settings uh, and in some churches, worship kind of varies pretty dramatically. Uh, and it's a little easier to tell that nowadays in the post-pandemic era because unless you wanted to experience other forms of worship previously, you kind of had to go to those churches to experience it. Now you can just go on YouTube and see as many different forms of worship as you want. So how do we keep it balanced? Well, these five words help us at North Sound, help guide Casey and, and Chris and our worship team as they prepare, helps us to understand what balanced worship looks like. Last week we spoke of the word Abba, and we talked about how it is the key understanding of the relationship that Jesus had with his father. And we talked about the fact that the best understanding of Abba is that of daddy. Joachim Eremaeus, I shared last week, New Testament scholar, talked about in the days when the aircraft pulled onto the ramp but didn't have a jetway, a Middle Eastern man coming down the stairs of the jet and a little boy running across the tarmac to meet him, shouting, Abba, 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 Daddy, Daddy, welcome home, Daddy. And that's the picture that we have of Jesus' relationship with the Father and that we are invited into that relationship. And so Paul speaks about the Spirit speaking through us through the word Abba, and we too are children of the Father. And Abba helps us understand the deep love that God has for us, each one of us, in the context of an intimate family relationship, the kind of relationship that we would have with a loving daddy. And I know for some of us, we had difficult experiences growing up, and the concept of a loving father isn't someone that we, something that we can immediately grasp and understand, but our heavenly father is, in fact, a loving Father who loves us unconditionally. This perspective on worship illustrates one aspect of who God is, and that is the fancy word is imminence, the imminence of God. That is to say the closeness of God. God is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. He's very real to us. He lives within us. He's present when we gather together, and we refer to that as God's imminence, and it's very, very true. Acts 17 says this, and they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him, <clears throat> excuse me, and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And we know that our Lord is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, as I mentioned. One of my favorite stories that illustrates another aspect of God's character and his relationship to us it comes from C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I need to dig out the Chronicles of Narnia. I have them on my bookshelf at home, and I can remember my third grade teacher reading to us 
um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I was so excited. I couldn't wait for the next day, for the next chapter. It was so exciting, that introduction. And, uh, and, and, and the story, of course, is of children during World War II who left London because of the Nazi bombing that was taking place to find safer places in the countryside. And I shared with folks in the first service that, that Roy Stubbs, who is a part of our congregation, Liz's husband, actually was one of the children, not the, not the Pevensey children uh, of, uh, of the book, but in fact one of the British children that left his home in London to go out to the countryside. And so we have these Pevensey children who are now out in the countryside. They're staying with someone that they didn't know previously, a professor who was willing to take them into their home. And they're, they're playing hide-and-seek, and there's a wardrobe, uh, which we would call a closet, and they go in the closet, and they, they push back on the clothing and find it's getting colder, and suddenly they find themselves in Narnia. It's a place where it's always winter, and never Christmas because of the work of an evil witch that is keeping Narnia in those circumstances. So they hear word of a gentle lion called Aslan, and he is one who extends love and care. Aslan is with them and for them, but they learn about another part of Aslan's character when they go, through Narnia and are welcomed by the family of beavers, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And here's how the conversation goes. Lucy asks, she's the youngest, she asks if Aslan is a man. And Mr. Beaver responds, Aslan, a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without her knees knocking. They're either braver than most or just plain silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. Later on in the story, they actually meet Aslan, and Lewis describes the encounter. He said, as for Aslan himself, the beavers and the children didn't know what to do or say when they saw him. People who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now, for when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they just caught a glimpse of the golden mane and the great, royal, solemn, overwhelming eyes, and then they found they couldn't look at him and went all trembly. Friends, it's like this with God. He is both Abba, this expression of God that is so close to us, so real to us, that friend that sticks closer than a brother. But he's also almighty God, maker of heaven and earth. And as almighty God, he is transcendent. As Abba, we speak of his imminence. 
And as Almighty God, we speak of his transcendence, his otherness, the fact that he is God and we are not. He is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And that word of worship this morning, hallelujah, directs us toward the praise of an Almighty God. Hallelujah is a word that is found only in Revelation chapter 19, and we read it this way. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, who has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne there came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with the fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The passage of Scripture immediately before this describes the fall of Babylon. And now there's a shout of praise. Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. There's been victory. God has given us victory and now we rejoice and exult and give him glory. The Hebrew hallelujah is made up of two Hebrew words, hallelujah, which means praise, and yah, which is short for Yahweh. Yahweh is the name that was given to God when Moses in the wilderness was confronted by the burning bush. And God had that conversation of call with Moses, and in that that conversation, that call with Moses, Moses asked the question, when I go back to the people of Israel in Egypt, what will convince them? How can I convince them that I've heard from God and that I'm supposed to be their leader? And at that moment, God revealed to him his sacred name. And that sacred name was revealed as a part of the verb to be, which we read in Exodus chapter uh, 3, verse 5 and 6, where God said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God your father, the, uh, of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. That's transcendence. That's this other piece of God that is part of who God is, this sense of the otherness, the sense of Almighty God. 
Moses received the call, but then he says to God, who shall I say sent me? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's that verb to be in Hebrew. He said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. YHWH is called the Tetragrammaton, and it is such a holy name that even today when our Jewish friends read the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, when they come to this, they don't say Yahweh, but they say Adonai or Lord because the name is so sacred they don't want to in any way tarnish the name by pronouncing it in a way that doesn't honor the name of God in this way. We read that Jesus, as the Son of God, claimed that he was God as well. In John chapter 8, so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the synagogue. They picked up stones because they thought he was blaspheming. He was claiming to be God. Yahweh is associated with the transcendence of God, his otherness, his sacredness, his awesomeness. And we see this continued in the life of Moses, this awesomeness that continued on down when he went up on Mount Sinai and he received the Ten Commandments. And you remember, he couldn't look on the face of God, but he could see God pass because the transcendence, the power of God was so powerful. But God gave him the Ten Commandments and he brought them down and you know it was a little bit complicated. He had to get a second set because of the sin of the people of Israel. But the commandments that he got, they put into the ark. And the ark was carried with them as a sign and a symbol of God's transcendence and yet somehow Almighty God being with them. I don't know how many of you saw the original Steven Spielberg movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I can remember when I saw that. I think I saw it at a theater at North, Northgate, and I was absolutely blown away by this movie because I don't know that I've ever seen a movie that kept me on the edge of my seat for the whole movie. Just when you started to relax, there was some other adventure that Harrison Ford got into. You may remember that. But there was a moment in the movie, and I so wish I could show it to you, but what we discovered is that we used to be able to use movie clips, and we have a license to do that, uh, but what we don't have a license to do and what we can't get is a license for our live streaming. So for our folks that are watching via live streaming, thanks a lot, because of you I can't show movie clips. <laughs> Actually, we, we love to have you join us. Uh, but, uh, but the fact is we can't. So I have to explain to you the, uh, the pictures from this particular moment where I think Steven Spielberg, it was Hollywood, it was special effects, but it gave you the sense of the power of God and the transcendence of God in that moment when the Nazis pried open the lid of the Ark of the Covenant and God's presence poured out into that room in a very visual kind of a way you got a sense of the awesomeness of God. 
I think that it's important for us to understand the awesomeness of God that's revealed in his name and the fact that our response is to praise him. Webster tells us that to praise is to glorify or to worship. Worship comes from the, uh, the old English, worth-ship. When we worship God as we have done this morning and even as we are doing now, what we're doing is we're giving worth to God. We're saying, God, you're worthy. You are worthy, and we worship you as an expression of the fact that you are worthy of our worship. We worship you because of who you are. In Revelation 4, we read, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And then in the same chapter, we worship God because he's the creator. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And then in the next chapter, we see that we're to worship God because he's brought us salvation. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open it sealed, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language, and people, and nation. So as we worship, we worship God for who he is, and then we worship him for what he has done for us with grateful hearts, because our salvation isn't our doing. It's the gift of the cross, the gift of God giving his son to become the means by which our sins are forgiven. Notice how In Revelation chapter 1, John, who gave us the book of Revelation, responded to the awesomeness of God. Verse 117, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. In other cases, the response is to bow or to kneel in respect and adoration, Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God. We are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. We, um, we sponsored Holy Trinity Edmonds, an Anglican church here in our community back, I don't know, about 2014. And they're doing very, very well. Um, It's wonderful to see how they've taken off and are just doing a a great job here for the kingdom. But if you ever experience a different kind of worship or want to experience a different kind of worship, what you will find in their service is that they will bow. So when they come in, it's not unusual for them to bow before the altar. And then during the course of the service, they have kneelers and they will kneel And we call this the embodiment of worship. They're worshiping with their bodies. And it's a very biblical thing to do. Here we raise our hands, we we sit, we stand. uh, But our friends kind of outdo us with the embodiment of the worship that they do. And I have to say for any of you, if at any point in the service, typically as Pastor Casey leads us, um, if you feel like kneeling, if you sense God's presence and want to kneel down, kneel. 
And uh, if, you, uh, if you want to, um, to, to, to bow before the altar uh, uh, from wherever you are as you come in, I mean, make yourself at home to do that. That's scriptural. It's the embodiment of worship. Many years ago, a man by the name of Paul Bilheimer wrote a book called Destined for the Throne. Some of you may have read it. In the last chapter, he talks about the role of praise in the Christian life. And he makes a strong case for praise being the practical answer to faith and being bogged down in doubt. He writes this. He said, if the highest function of angelic hosts is praise, it follows logically that the highest function of the human spirit must also be praise. Ever-increasing approximation to the infinity, uh, the infinitely lovely character of God is the most sublime goal of all creation. It's the summum bonum, the greatest good, the highest joy, the most exquisite delight, the supreme rapture, the most ravishing transport of the human spirit, worship and praise of the infinite, lovely God, exercises, reinforces, and strengthens all that is most sublime, transcendent, and divine in the inner being. He is continually transformed step by step from glory to glory into the image of of the infinitely happy God. He goes on to say that one of the great benefits of worship is how it promotes mental health. It takes attention from oneself to God, releasing one's preoccupation with oneself. It reminds me of Rick Warren's bestseller that begins with the words, it's not about you. Who would have ever thought a bestseller that begins with the words, it's not about you, would in fact be a bestseller, but it's true. Stan Grentz reminds us that lest we think of God as a cosmic egoist who is telling us, praise me, praise me, come on, worship, praise me, praise me, that it's important to understand that when we give glory to God, we're expressing an affirmation of his character, which leads us to the Trinity, And the Trinity shows us that the essence of his character is love shared between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So as we worship God, in a very real way, it's reflected amongst the Trinity as the very nature of the Trinity is love and faithful service to each other. And that community is designed to also represent community as it should be for us as we love one another And as we serve one another, as we express gratitude and thanks to one another, we praise God for the character of love that he desires to be manifest in us through humble service and fellowship. So in fact, when we praise God, we're affirming the divine character of humble servanthood in love as exemplified by Jesus who gave his life in humble obedience to the Father. I've shared with some of you my father's experience in 1949. He was a relatively young pastor and uh, principal of a Bible college up in Edmonton, Alberta. And uh, there was a revival that happened in the late 40s, and roughly in that particular time frame, Dad was teaching. Uh, I wasn't around, so this is Dad relating the story to me, but... He was teaching on soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation. And as he was teaching, he was 
talking about the blood of Christ and a special anointing of the Holy Spirit came upon him and instead of the verse that he had opened his mouth to teach the students relative to salvation, there was a, a movement of the Spirit that came into his lungs somehow and out came a message in tongues followed immediately by an interpretation of tongues. And when he was finished, he opened his eyes and he saw that virtually every student in the classroom was down on their face, laying down prostrate before the Lord. And at that moment, he heard like the wind of the Spirit, almost like at Pentecost, hit the second-year classroom and the third-year classroom, the sound of chairs moving, and the identical thing happened in those classrooms. The chairs were pushed aside, and the students went down on their face, prostrate before the Lord. Their response when confronted with the powerful presence of God was to lay prostrate before him. So my friends, what does it mean for us at North Sound Church to affirm hallelujah? It means we're committed in our worship not only to worship the God who is Abba, our daddy, the one who is close to us, abides in our hearts, but we also sing hallelujah. We praise Yahweh. We kneel and we bow before the almighty king, the maker of heaven and earth, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning for the blessing of your presence. Where would we be without it, Lord? We thank you for the instruction of your word, and we pray, Lord, that as we unpack these five words of worship, you'll help us in our congregation and in our own lives to balance the wonder that we see in Aslan, the wonder that we see in God, one who both is transcendent and other and powerful and yet abides in our hearts. And for that, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.